Imagine, if you will, receiving a, a gift from someone that you love and who loves you dearly. Let's say it's a book, um, a really good gift that was, that was perfect for you. Let's say that it's a beautiful three-volume edition of The Lord of the Rings. The greatest fantasy story ever written, which is great. We love that kind of thing. At least I do. So then imagine that someone who wasn't the person who gave you the book started telling you that you're using it wrong or made some rules for you to make sure that you used the gift properly, but only in their opinion. They would watch how often you read it. They would judge whether you treasured it enough by how often you read it. Maybe they thought you carried it around too much and risked damaging this precious gift. So they told you that you could only read the book between certain hours on a particular day, or you could only read it in one particular room of your home with no drinks nearby so that you wouldn't ruin the pages. So instead of getting to enjoy the story, your experience with the gift would have turned into a, a dizzying list of do's and don'ts, completely erasing and even redefining the entire point of giving you the book, which is to get lost in Middle-earth and see the Dark Lord destroyed. Now, I know this, this isn't a perfect example for what we're going to talk about today, but a very similar thing had happened in Jesus' day regarding the good gift of the Sabbath. Rather than following the simple instruction to rest, over time, the Pharisees and their ilk had turned a day of rest into a day of, of working to avoid work. According to rabbinic Judaism, the descendant of the traditions of the Pharisees, there are 39 categories of work that are unlawful to do on the Sabbath, and none of them are, are drawn from Scripture. Here's just a few. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, delivering medical care for non-life-threatening injuries or illnesses, weaving two threads, making two loops, separating two threads, writing two letters, erasing two letters. How did a day that was meant to be a gift of rest and enjoyment of God's good gifts turn into a day where if your shoe came untied, you couldn't stoop to tie it until tomorrow? Or where you could write one letter, but writing two letters was simply too much work. Well, the traditions of the Pharisees did that. They made extra-biblical rules and enforced them as if they were the will of God to the people. The Pharisees bound the consciences and indeed the very lives of the people with their interpretive demands over and above the word of God. The purpose of these enforced traditions was, was not freedom and rest in the love of God, but actually slavery to the will of man um, and ultimately sin. It was slavery uh, that sought to lay a heavy burden on people and not lift a finger to help. So, so we know that Jesus had many interactions with the Pharisees and sparred with them on these kinds of things again and again throughout the pages of Scripture. So our text today is one of those very instances uh, and so we're going to look now, and we're going to see him win yet another argument and glorify himself against a backdrop of sin. We're actually going to start reading, if you will turn to Matthew 12. Our main text is going to be verses 1 through 8, but we're actually going to begin in Matthew 11:25, 25. 
and we'll go through 2.14 just to get some added context. So we'll start with Matthew 11.25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. When a man, a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us now today to see wonderful things out of your word, uh, that you would refresh our hearts, that you would guide us and direct us, and help us to see um, the beauty of, of rest in you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So in the course of Jesus' regular ministry, he went to the synagogue with the rest of the community on the Sabbath, and, and he took every opportunity to speak the truth to those around him, seeking and saving the lost. He always perfectly obeyed the law, as no other man ever could, because Jesus is divine and perfect and cannot sin. Thus, he perfectly obeyed the Sabbath. And that irked the self-righteous people around him. Now, I want to take a little time to give some biblical definition to what the Sabbath is before we can understand how it had been perverted at the time. We have to know what God says about it first. So, so Yahweh instituted the Sabbath. Um, it's never been a matter of human tradition or social construct. It's a principle. Uh, this principle of the Sabbath is actually rooted in creation, uh, way before the fourth commandment was ever written on stone. So we could say that the Sabbath is as old as the earth itself. Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So this is the first institution of the Sabbath principle, 
where one day in seven is blessed. Here it was the last day of the week because Yahweh had worked in creation on the other days. So I've actually described this as a principle because of one important and perhaps, I hope, obvious fact that God doesn't need rest. God doesn't get sweaty and exhausted like us. He doesn't end up with an aching back or, or tremendous thirst uh, after working in the garden or, or whatever it is any of us do. He doesn't need to, to recover from his labors. Uh, he's not a man like us. But I also say this because Yahweh does have the, the absolute right to set up types and shadows that are intended to point toward a later fulfillment. Uh, we're going to touch more on that later, but I want to set that up as we discuss the Sabbath. God was instituting a, a holy day every week. Uh, we might even call it a holiday. By completing the work that he intended and beholding it in joy. It's not an enormous list of don'ts, only rest. <clears throat> we could say that, that Yahweh then codified the eternal Sabbath principle in his written word when he delivered the, the moral law to Moses on Sinai on tablets of stone written with, with God's own finger. Uh, we see it in the fourth commandment from Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Do all your work on the other six days, but rest on the Sabbath. Not just you, not just your family, but the gift of rest even extends to the servants and even the livestock. Put your work aside to rest and worship on this weekly holiday, right? That's the principle. Uh, it was, so it was prudent, of course, at that time to prepare your Sabbath meal, perhaps, ahead of time so you wouldn't have to worry about cooking on the day. But it was a matter of prudence, not a matter of law. Think about when Israel lived on manna while they were in the wilderness. The only day that they could gather more than one day's portion was on the sixth day of the week. There was no gathering to be done on the Sabbath. God didn't even send manna on the Sabbath, so there would be no temptation to go out and work when they should rest. Uh, from Exodus sixteen twenty-five, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. God takes his Sabbath seriously. <clears throat> he made it holy. The observance of it is important. Under the Mosaic Covenant, he commanded it to be one of the conspicuous marks of his people, the Israelites, compared to the nations. They were the ones who rest on the seventh day to worship their God. And the penalty in the law for breaking the Sabbath was death. Slowly but surely over time, though, that, that simple heart of devotion to the Lord eroded. It became more and more of the mess that it had become in Jesus' time, uh, as we will see. Uh, let's rejoin Jesus and the disciples now in, in Matthew 12. Um, they were simply walking to the temple for Sabbath worship services like the rest of the community. 
And I'm sure it could have been a lovely day like any other Sabbath day before it, except for uh, the Pharisees who were apparently hiding out in the wheat fields in order to jump out and accuse them. It's, it's like something out of a cartoon. Think Wiley Coyote, you know, hiding in order to jump out and activate one of those Acme-branded traps. Uh, but only uh, he would find himself in a worse predicament than the roadrunner that he intended to make as his victim. It's very bizarre. It's, it's weird behavior. Um, now, for, for some of us, we see that the disciples are, are hungry and they begin to pluck heads of grain and eat. Um, some might think that the, the wrongdoing here is actually that the disciples are eating grain that's not their own. This is actually permissible under the law. And farmers harvested in a certain way where they left the edges unharvested so that folks, um, hungry travelers, um, the needy, the general needy in the community, that they would benefit by passing by that field and being able to eat, to glean, to glean that grain. A good reference for that is actually Leviticus 23, verse 22. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So the disciples here aren't aren't being accused of of sin for gleaning a little bit of a a snack from this field to, to take care of their hunger. They were being charged with sin for plucking heads of grain under that man-made prohibition against reaping. Right, tisk tisk. Luke mentions another fact uh, on this matter when, uh, in, in his gospel account, that they didn't merely pluck and eat as if it were an apple or something like that, but they actually, they actually rubbed the kernels in their hands. Um, that's also threshing. That separating the, the edible grain from the chaff around it. So that's now, that's now a second infraction. These guys, are, these guys have been caught red-handed. They're in, they're in big trouble uh, with the Pharisees. Now, of course, you know, our heads should be spinning about this because how in the world is rubbing kernels in your hand in any way similar to the act of threshing grain? Right? It's not. It's not at all. Uh, but this is the level of legalism that the Pharisees had trapped people under. And this is the sort of legalism that Jesus was setting us free from. So the Pharisees bring their formal accusation plainly in verse 2, where they say, look, uh, your disciples are, are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Right? This, this isn't a question. Uh, they're not being interrogated. This is the sort of gotcha accusation of someone who thinks oh, they got the bad guy. Uh, we, we got him fair and square. Um, we have to remember when they say that, that these things are not lawful, they're not talking about Scripture. They're talking about their rule book, what's called the Traditions of the Elders. Uh, it's actually cited elsewhere in the Gospels. That's an actual formal uh, set of laws that aren't actually divinely appointed laws delivered by God. Uh, these were cultural traditions. So the heart behind this secondary law is like building a scaffold around an old building that's being renovated. You know, we typically, we typically surround structures with scaffolding in order to support the workers, the, the tools, the materials necessary to get the work done without damaging the structure in the process. So the Pharisees in this way were, were building a, a scaffold of man-made laws around the actual law of God. 
I once heard a, a contemporary rabbi explain it this way. He said, we've made our own set of rules that, that are stricter than the Bible so that we can be sure you haven't broken the law, you've only violated our rules. Right? This is an attitude that's, that's completely antithetical to what Scripture commands. It reveals a heart of disbelief in the power of God and of His Word to change His people. So, to bring that to bear against our text, the Pharisees claim to be so zealous for the law that in order to keep people from actually harvesting on the Sabbath, they ordered them not to glean by hand out of hunger. In order to prevent them from getting out the flail and, and threshing and, and then winnowing all this harvested grain, they ordered the people not to rub individual grains in their hands to satisfy their hunger on the Sabbath. Jesus really had their number when he said in Matthew 23, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So Jesus knew the Pharisees' intentions, and so he, he interacted with the Pharisees in a few different ways. Uh, he did direct rebukes, like calling them whitewashed tombs. Sometimes he answered their questions with other questions that were intended to, to stump them or to publicly reveal their secret thoughts. He does something here in this text that's very rabbinical. He cites biblical precedent while his opponents only appeal to their traditions. This is the same strategy he used on Satan in the wilderness, direct citation of Scripture. Now, to us, maybe these two Old Testament texts that we read um, that, that were referred to in our, in our text today don't necessarily deliver the punch that we would expect. But, of course, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. It's our own weakness not to see the clarity of his rebuke without doing a little work. Uh, he mentions one specific instance in the life of David from a specific citation, uh, or, and then he adds a, a specific citation from Leviticus uh, that, that will be hopefully a bit familiar to us given Dana's own exposition of Leviticus. Uh, we'll, we'll look at both of these in their turn, and, and we're going to think deeply about not only what Jesus is arguing against uh, regarding the Pharisees, but what Jesus intends to positively teach about the ongoing goodness of the Sabbath. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. That's 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. Vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, 
For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. Right, so David and his men are, are traveling, and, and they're hungry, much like Jesus and, and his disciples were on the day in question in our main text. They were on a secret mission for King Saul, and they were under a deadline, and so there was not much time. He went to the only place that he could, to the priests, specifically to Nob, which was a holy uh, city within, uh, within greater Jerusalem. This is where the tabernacle was, was parked at this time. Um, surely David could ask the priests for some food. But as Ahimelech said, I have nothing except for the, the holy bread. Um, we might know it as the show bread. This is bread that was to be prepared on every Sabbath and to be eaten only by the priests and then removed from before the presence of God. They would bake 12 loaves in all, and this is all laid out in Leviticus 24. Now, there are two things to me that, that, that make me think this event is actually happening on the Sabbath day. First, the fact is that Ahimelech emphasizes the showbread here. That makes me think that it's possible it might have just come out of the oven on the Sabbath day. Um, that's the day that the bread was supposed to be baked, and it would have been prominent in Ahimelech's mind at that point. The second is David's emphasis in verse 5 about how much more today will their vessels be holy. Anyone would have taken preparations to be ritually clean so they could attend Sabbath worship, so they could enter the temple, or they could go to the tabernacle and worship. David's men still would have maintained this practice as men of God, even if their military work was going to keep them from missing corporate worship at the tabernacle on the Sabbath. So after assuring that the men were not ritually unclean and they were pure, Ahimelech does hand over this sacred bread without any arguments or, or deal-making. After all, if the bread is not eaten, it's removed from before the Lord. It's disposed of. Why was this not a greater cause of concern for Ahimelech, who had the responsibility of maintaining the holy things of God's house? Because it was permissible on the basis of need in ministering to the flock, so he relinquished the five loaves for David and his men, and he happily sent them their way. It would be hard for the Pharisees to call David a flagrant uh, lawbreaker, the greatest of Israel's kings, uh, the one who wrote of his love for Yahweh's law in the Psalms. So this is a great support text for Jesus' righteous Sabbath teaching. Now keep this in mind uh, as we look to the next quoted passage, and then we'll bring this all, all together. Um, turn to Numbers 28. Uh, we're just going to look at two very brief verses. Numbers 28, verses 9 through 10. Jesus is going to make us think about the work of the priests on the Sabbath. <clears throat> Numbers 28, verses 9 and 10. On the Sabbath day, two male lambs, a year old without blemish, and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for the grain offering, mixed with oil in its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath, besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. Right, these are specific offerings that are to be made on the Sabbath day, uh, as if it were like any other day of the week. 
except that actually it includes twice the usual amount of flour as a regular daily sacrifice. So Jesus speaks strongly in, in Matthew 12, saying that the, the priests actually profane the Sabbath. But that's appropriate. The work of the ministry in the tabernacle in the temple was extremely physical and, and exhausting. Uh, the priests were, were killing and gutting and burning animals. Really, the fact that the priests have to retire at age 50 is quite a testament to the hard work that it took to be a priest under the Old Covenant. So the, the Sabbath day was not a day of rest for them like it was for everyone else. The responsibilities of their God-given office superseded the day of rest as their ministry was required for the people to celebrate the Sabbath. Their work was necessary for Sabbath worship to go on for the people. These sacrifices were needed, and they also foreshadowed the necessary forgiveness of sins to provide rest for the people. There's a connection there between the work done by the priests and the rest of the people, the people taking rest. Jesus asked the accusatory Pharisees, have you not read? Not only to mean, have you never seen this passage before? But even more, have you never considered this? This alone is, is a very stinging indictment against, uh, against their teaching. If they knew this much about the law, or at least as much as they pretended to know, then these texts would have prevented them from going down the road that they had gone in promoting their man-made tradition. So what are these two passages that Jesus cites? What do they have in common? What's the, what's the theme here that Jesus is using to ground this sort of one-two punch at the Pharisees' man-made Sabbath traditions? They both highlight that righteousness requires ministering to those in need, even in seeming contradiction to the law. These acts of necessity don't actually contradict the Sabbath at all. David and his men, right, they were desperately hungry and on an important mission for King Saul. Once Ahimelech determined that they were not ritually unclean, he hands over almost half of, of the holy bread to these hungry soldiers for them to eat. The priests aren't struck dead for butchering sacrificial animals or, or making dough on the Sabbath for those people who come to worship and to bring their sacrifice as commanded. Obedience to the letter of the law never saved anyone. This should be evident to us as people under the new covenant. The law was never intended to save. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. In the Old Testament saints, they observed these very things through the types and shadows that pointed to the coming Messiah, who would be the final sacrifice, who would be the great high priest, and who would provide the true Sabbath rest for his people. The point of the law wasn't to, to pile up animal carcass after animal carcass. I hope that you've seen that from, from Dana's sermons through Leviticus. The point was to actually show man's need for forgiveness of his sins, to point him to the forgiver. The showbread was intended to be eaten. It was food. <laughs> To withhold it from hungry David, a man after God's own heart, would be to break the first and second greatest commandment, which we actually just read in our public reading earlier. 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The same applies to the priest's duties on the Sabbath. For them to, to simply take the day off and not officiate the Sabbath sacrifices that were brought to them, uh, that would be an, an egregious sin against God and against neighbor. And it would be an abdication of their own office. They would fail to serve the purpose that God had called them to. No, instead, those priests gave up the Sabbath rest in order to administer the basis of that rest for the people. Right? As we talked about last week, the propitiation and expiation of their sins through the sacrifice of two lambs and some fine flour, foreshadowing the final and perfect sacrifice of Christ. As Matthew Henry says, their Sabbath day work was never considered a violation of the fourth commandment because the temple service required and justified it. This intimates that those labors are lawful on the Sabbath day, which are necessary not just to the support of life, but to the service of the day, as tolling a bell to gather the congregation together, traveling to church, and the like. Sabbath rest is to promote and not hinder Sabbath worship. So by means of these two texts uh, that might seem obscure to us, Jesus is speaking clearly here. The Sabbath rest does not forbid acts of mercy to those who are in need. The laws requiring the people to rest from their labors do not put heavier weight on the people than the work they were intended to rest from. I'll say that one more time. The laws requiring the people to rest from their labors do not put heavier weight on the people than the work they were supposed to rest from. The rest should be restful. The rest should not be work. Jesus said in the passage just before this one, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Sabbath of Christ is not the heavy burden that the Pharisaical Sabbath was and still is today. It is easy. It is light. It is actually restful. Because, as it says in verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is beginning a new section of his response with, with this utterance. He's already delivered the, the one-two combo hit uh, with his citations, and, and this one really is the knockout. He says, I tell you, right, this is the eternal word speaking, the, the logos is speaking here. Right? He alone has authority to do what he says and to say what he, what he says. The Jewish Sabbath was intended to point to something greater, just as the temple was meant to point to something greater. Jesus is pointing now toward not only a post-temple future, but a, a new temple future, that of his church, a building made of living stones that no army could topple like the one in Jerusalem. And uh, I've got some pictures of that one if you uh, want to see it sometime. So praise God that we don't have to engage in the sacrificial activities that defined the worship of, in the temple uh, or of the tabernacle first and then to the temple because the final sacrifice has been delivered for all time. 
Now, now we at, at RBC are just one segment of, of Christ's new temple. Perhaps maybe even one brick in one portion of the wall uh, of that glorious temple. And the gates of hell, not just of Rome or Russia or the, the worldly agenda or whatever opponent, cannot stand against it. It is Christ's body, and he maintains it. So in the same way that the temple uh, of the church is greater than the physical temple, this Sabbath that Jesus delivers is more, is much greater than a mere resting of the body, although it remains bodily rest as well. But in Christ, we rest from the exhausting task of trying to secure and maintain our salvation through good works on our own. Right? That's our natural tendency as people, to try to earn our own benefits. No, it is finished to telestai, the words of Jesus from the cross. Right? The great work of the forgiveness of sins is done. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Something new is here. No more lambs. Our lamb was crucified and lives forever. No fine flour. We feast on the bread of the sacrament every time that we gather. No dividing curtain separating us from the presence of God. The Holy Spirit lives in us. The curtain is not only torn, it doesn't even exist anymore. Right? The Romans toasted it along with the rest to God's good pleasure. Something much, much greater than the temple is here. In the next verse, we have a citation from Jesus that really drives the point home. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. A direct quote from Hosea 6.6. This is the one where the Pharisees really struck out. Um, Or to use a different metaphor, they went all in on sacrifice and went bust. Uh, They began lording their self-assigned power as the arbiters of holiness over the people, uh, requiring great, great uh, weight to be placed on them, requiring lots of effort to satisfy mere men, not God. They built that scaffolding of sacrifice around the word of God so that the mercy would never flow out. An action which itself breaks God's law, the first commandment especially. Their, Their rules made themselves God in place of Yahweh, thinking that they knew better than he does how to promote holiness among the people. They papered over the mercy of God with their, with their veneer of sacrificial self-righteousness. Now, and they weren't ignorant of this verse. Uh, that's not what Jesus means when he says, if you had known what this means. Just like earlier where he said, have you not read? He knew that they read it and they hated it because they hated the author of those words. But I do love the proverbial irony of this. That these, these men who sought to condemn the guiltless are shown to be condemned themselves. Right? In, their, in their willful obfuscation of God's word, they actually were walking straight to their own downfall, flip-flopping good and evil, making what is not sin into sin doling out public rebuke for merely violating man-made traditions. So Jesus brings them down off their high horse with, with the last utterance of our passage. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the real knockout statement, right? He, he, 
Jesus is Lord of all creation. That makes him Lord of the Sabbath too. It's his Sabbath. Recall all those texts from earlier where we were uh, looking at the original institution of the Sabbath from Genesis. From the beginning, the commandment was simple, to rest. And because of the people's sins, it got complicated. Because sinful people are experts at turning gifts into drudgeries. People had taken the simple and clear commandment to rest one day in seven and turned it into a whole system of rules and punishments. Thank God, the Lord of the Sabbath cut through that noise for us. In emphasizing his lordship over the Sabbath, Jesus proclaims his sole right to not only fulfill, but to reinstitute the Sabbath principle. So how did he do this? How did he reinstitute the Sabbath principle? In his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus' body spent the Jewish Sabbath resting in death. He breathed his last on Friday. His body was in the tomb Friday evening, which is the start of Saturday, according to the way that Jews mark time. Um, So that is the beginning of, of the Sabbath. Staying in the grave all day Saturday, and then rising on the first day of the week, we call Sunday. In his role as great high priest for his people, he ended the Jewish Sabbath, which was itself a type and shadow of the true Sabbath that he would institute. He left it in the grave, as it were, when he walked out in his resurrection body. As he rose again to life, never to die again, on the first day of the week, So the true New Covenant Sabbath, the Lord's Day, occurs on the first day of the week, not the seventh. The Lord of the Sabbath has the right and authority to make the Sabbath on the seventh day of the week into the Lord's Day on the first day of the week. And so following his lead, the church has set aside the first day of the week from Acts 2 forward. John even marks the day at the start of his prophecy in Revelation that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, I'm not just making this stuff up. Uh, the, the Second London Baptist Confession has this to say about the Christian Sabbath, uh, the Lord's day. Uh, it's in the last two paragraphs of chapter 22. As it is the law of nature, that in general, a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by his word, in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. And it is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Note the return to the original intention of the Sabbath from Genesis forward, rest, setting aside our our common affairs to take up wondrous affairs, 
the worship of our sovereign God, to gather together, to receive the ministry of the uh, sweet, sweet, ordinary means of grace, together, to not put a bind on us that would prevent us from mercy, as Jesus reminded us in this passage. And also that he proved in the very next passage by healing a man with a withered hand on the, Lord's, on the Sabbath. These works of, of mercy or necessity, which is the work of doctors and nurses and paramedics, for example, they don't cause them to sin if they are commissioned to work on a Sunday. The Sabbath is meant for us to worship, not hinder us from worship by focusing on mere externals. In Mark's account of this same story, Jesus even says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Lord's day is ordained by Yahweh for us to worship Him and to remove distractions from our worship of Him. This is actually glorious freedom that's ours in Christ Jesus who forgave us our sins. We are now free to rest our bodies and minds on the Lord's day because our weary souls are at rest in Him. That's the heart of the Lord's day, the Christian Sabbath, the full assurance that our God has removed every sin from His people and that we can rest in Him and magnify His name together. It might seem like a strange application, especially if you come from a background of, of legalism or moralism, where preaching is really about what you do for God um, and how to prove your love for God. But I, I would call all of us to rest. We're not prone to resting well. We always want to go and to do and to accomplish and that's what we should do uh, six days a week. But we've been given our various vocations by God's grace and for His glory. And we've also been given a day of rest and worship also for His glory. Unless providentially called to acts of necessity or mercy, we should look forward to our day of rest each week, purchased by the blood of our Savior. And so, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, and you have not repented and believed in his name, I, I beg you to call out to him who always has an open ear to the repentant sinner. Be reconciled to your creator. Truly desire that your sins be forgiven, removed and forgotten, and enter his rest. Be unburdened from the weight of your sin and take on his easy yoke. And to my brothers and sisters who continue in the faith, <clears throat> continue in that rest. Recall the sweetness of, of your fellowship with God. Never submit to a yoke of slavery by those who would say, don't taste, don't touch, or even don't tie your shoes, or, or, or don't turn the furnace on. Rest in your Savior on His terms, not the world's. I want to leave you with a quote from St. Augustine that gets to the heart of this so succinctly and, and sharply that I, I couldn't leave it out. It's from his classic work, The Confessions, where he actually tells his entire life story to God in prayer. The quote is this, You stir man to take, to take pleasure in praising you because you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So may you sweetly rest in him today and forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, for the gift of your word, for the gift of, of the rest that you've promised us and that you've accomplished for us in Christ. And that as we trust you completely, 
with the salvation of our souls. We, we trust you as well with our well-being as we take a day to focus and worship together and rest in the assurance that, that we are yours if we've repented and believed in, in your Son. Help us today continue as we, as we worship to, uh, to revive our hearts, continue to, to bless us and feed us and send us out to magnify your name forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.